Hey guys, it's Emmett. Welcome to your weekly broadcast of Exhaust. Um, we've got a great guest for you today. I'm here with John and Ian Corey. Um, Ian's been a friend of mine for a long time and edited me at uh, Invisible Oranges uh, when I was writing for them. That's a heavy metal publication uh, for those of you who don't know. We're going to talk about music and we're going to go through some brass tack stuff. And then we're going to talk about more diffuse cultural stuff that it's sort of grafted onto that. I'm excited for this episode. I love talking to Ian. I've been on his podcast, Lambda Forms Radio, a couple times. It's always a good time. Lambda Forms Radio is, of course, taken from his exceptional band, Lambda Forms, and we'll link to all of his stuff in the description. So for now... We're just going to get the conversation going now that all three of us have had too much cold brew and feel like absolute shit. <laughs> We're going to figure out how to make this conversation work. Like the I way just had, out is through. We're yeah, the way gonna... out is through. Yeah, my breakfast was like three cold cuts and like two pieces of cheese because I realized I hadn't eaten anything. And I was just like, fuck, I got to log on to the to the thing. So welcome, Ian. We're really happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm, first off, I want to say that I'm proud of y'all for getting the podcast off the ground and getting this started. Uh, and I, I love the first episode. I'm, I'm excited to see where you're taking it. And thank you for having me on board so soon. Yeah, man. Uh, really appreciate that. Yeah. So we structured it so that we would hopefully never be involved in internet beef. So every episode comes out two to three weeks after it's been recorded. Uh, so we've just released our first episode as of recording this one. Um, and right now it's at 177 downloads, which feels pretty good for us for our first one. So thank you to everybody who's tuning in and listening. And we hope you're yeah, sticking thank with you. us. Yeah, and enjoy this. All right, man. So I want to tell a story. And I think it's tied to your story, based on your piece, No Final Interpretation. Um, so one of my favorite bands, uh, current bands, um, Code Orange, spent two years cutting a record, right? Um, underneath, which just came out. And here's how they did it. They recorded all of the analog stuff with Kurt Ballou. And then they recorded all of the digital stuff separately with a different producer and didn't tell him. And then they came back to Kurt Ballou and they were like, what's up? And he was like, what the fuck did you do? And then they had to figure <laughs> out how to make it work. And I think it's made for a great record. And it seemed like because of their world domination aesthetic that uh, when it came out, they were going to have a really successful United States tour. Um, and because their merch machine is so interwoven with their ability to generate cash, um, that this was going to really spell longevity for a band who had exhausted all of the resources Roadrunner had given them to uh, really sink their time into recording the record. The record came out a month into COVID. <laughs> um, and it, April has kind of gotten memory hold, but that was still when... Um, my memory of those first couple months is a feeling of heat and panic, like actual heat. Like it seemed like the internet was overheating in some way because everyone was freaking out. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Ian, you wrote about getting excited to go in and track drums for your record. Um, and then that problem falling away from you. And then there was sort of, you know, as with any life event that sort of upturns it, you can kind of hold it together for a few weeks and then you sort of realize what's happened and you're like, oh shit, like I'm kind of fucked up now because that's 
like part of who I am and I don't know how to express that. So I'm wondering if you could just sort of generally walk us through what it feels like to be a musician in this era. Uh, I mean, short version, very bad. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Um, You know, one one of the things that I I hear a lot of people say, specifically I'm thinking of the podcast um, Cookies. It's loosely a basketball podcast, but it's mostly just talking about news of the day through that lens. And they talk a lot about how um, COVID is in accelerator in so many ways. So I think of a lot of the problems that we're facing musicians, you know, a sort of stratification and insane distance between the musicians that are making a ton of money and are incredibly successful and everyone else. And I I think about how COVID has sort of blown that wide open in a lot of ways. Like there are a lot of musicians that don't need to tour. They just make enough money off of their music that they don't need to tour. But the the vast majority of musicians, uh, I would say, touring is the only way that they can survive. Uh, it is their day job. It is the the source of pretty much all, all of their income, whether that is from actually playing the shows or selling merchandise at the shows. And so I, I look at the situation with COVID and obviously touring is not possible. Touring is gone. Uh, in addition, everyone is sort of scrambling how to figure out how to survive otherwise because there's no relief from, you know, the state or the city or the country that you're living in if you're an American. And so everyone kind of just scrambled onto the internet the way I see it to sort of be like the, like technical difficulties, be right back for America, you know, on on Instagram live. Uh, And I think at first there was this, this wave of enthusiasm about playing live streamed shows, but of course not every musician can really do stuff like that. Like I'm, I'm a drummer. Uh, first and foremost. So I can't be like, Hey, come watch me drum by myself for an hour. Like no one wants to see that. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I think that the, the situation is very confusing because I think that it accelerated what was already the case, which is that the majority of the music industry is not made for the majority of musicians. And that you know, you have this situation where everyone's like chasing mainstream success or chasing like an imitation of mainstream success. And it's completely impossible now. So I feel like everyone that I'm, uh, I'm friends with or that I I work with that's a musician is sort of just scrambling to figure out any way to remain relevant, to continue making their art, to, you have to redefine your entire career at this point because all of the old methods were dying and now they're most likely dead. Yeah. I mean, that sounds about right to me. Um, I remember this is, we're going to go into the way back machine. Like 17 years ago, I got my first issue of Rolling Stone in the mail. Um, Actually, probably almost to the day, right? Because it was a birthday gift. My birthday's in October from my uncle. And it was the one with Christina Aguilera and the guitar on the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, where she's like mostly naked. Um, and, but that was also like the first piece that Rolling Stone had written about Bright Eyes. Um, which is how I found them, right? And one of the things I think they talk about in that piece, if I remember correctly, I think it's called Indie Rocks Boy Genius. Um, I'll be amazed if that title's right. I'm going to try to put it in the show notes so I can show off. Um, Is that uh, they're like, yeah, Saddle Creek like doesn't make a ton of money off of record sales. They're basically, they're in the black, but they're at zero. Um, You know, they break even. And the way that Connor Oberst can afford to bring 
half an orchestra on stage with him every single night is that they just do numbers in merch. Mm-hmm. And this was after all the, all the music giants had pretty much died um, or allegedly died, right? I mean, we'll get into later about how these companies basically turned into music licensing juggernauts. And right. that's really how the music industry has kept its consolidation together, despite the fact that the material industry of like selling overpriced CDs and stuff fell apart after Napster. But that seemed to be it. And there didn't seem to be an alternative. Now, it seems like COVID has accelerated the trends you're talking about and uh, platforms seem more important. So it's like yeah. Twitch. Do you like to bring it back to Code Orange? They did that underneath the skin where they did a... Alice in Chains like unplugged of their hardcore album, mm-hmm. uh, which was a surprising choice. And then they got Ricky Rackman to do like a fake mud bang- headbangers ball thing, like for an hour beforehand, so they could feature all of their ba- uh, friends' bands so that people would buy right. their merch. <laughs> right? They're just like trying yeah, to yeah. hold the Pittsburgh scene together for a little bit. Like, how does that look from the artist's vantage? Where you're like, okay, I've got Twitch, I've got TikTok. Obviously, this doesn't work for all types of music or all musicians. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, I think a lot about how prior to COVID, already a lot of musicians were starting. Like, you think of like Matt Heffy from Trivium was, I, I think, an innovator in this. And like figuring yes. out ways to make money as a musician on top of touring and on top of releasing records using Twitch. So like kind of bringing fans in and like live streaming him practicing for shows or live streaming shows from like just his perspective. Uh, I, and I saw something similar happening with a lot of like this band Rat Boys from Chicago. They just started a Patreon. Uh, some of the other bands that I work with, uh, this one band Humesha that I play drums for, they just started a Patreon as well. I, I think that, you were already seeing people being smart and like trying to figure out other ways to make money outside of the usual touring merch paradigm. And all of it would involve connecting themselves to their audience through one of these larger platforms. And so something like Twitch, which is, you know, owned by Amazon is one option. Um, Like just going directly to YouTube, becoming sort of like influencer vlogger, types that's another angle and i actually sort of think that what i'm doing with the podcast and the like the blog is a really shoddy attempt at the same thing within my own skill set you know like I, I sort of view like doing like what code orange did the idea of having this platform like using their own brand quote unquote however you want to talk about it as a platform to support the other scenes and the other bands in the pittsburgh scene i think is like a good model of doing that. Like you can, I sort of, I'm doing that with the podcast. I'm trying to like get other musicians that otherwise don't have places to promote themselves or are limited, have limited ability to promote themselves. I want to try and get them a place where they can talk at length about their music. Uh, So I think, yeah, you're seeing people kind of scattering to the winds to find like what's going to stick. And almost all of it involves being one cog in a larger machine for a platform that's usually owned by a, a huge company of some kind. Right. Yeah. There's so it seems to me like there are a couple, at least a couple things going on here. And one of them I want to call like the MySpace Telos listeners. Uh, I highly recommend you check out Finn McKenty's YouTube channel, punk rock MBA, specifically the MySpace episode he just released where he talks about how like every single platform that exists now is basically a version of MySpace, 
whether they like it or not. Uh, but that MySpace also changed how um, being a musician worked. Like suddenly you didn't necessarily have to tour. You could build the clout around your personality. You could do all that stuff. But it also created like an upper threshold on skill sets you needed. You suddenly just couldn't be a collection of weird, weird looking people uh, making weird music. You know, like you had to have like this entrepreneurial marketing aspect to who you are and that that had to be baked into it. Then the other aspect of it is that, um, you know, like all this shit, like Amazon, Spotify or whatever, the only way to access most music now is to let a major corporation spy on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes probably to let like both our government and a foreign government spy on you. <laughs> so there's like a hidden political dimension to that economy as well. I think actually bringing up MySpace in that way is also a really uh, a good place to start that conversation because if you think about why MySpace was so successful is that they started by branding themselves as being a place where musicians could promote themselves to their audience. Yeah, they were an entertainment thing. That's what they were like, we're not live journal. Mm-hmm. Like we're not here for that. And so in that situation, the musicians were sort of the cheese in the mousetrap, you know, like that's what brought in the audiences that then created, you know, could they could then take MySpace to scale or however you want to put it because all of these fans of the, of these musicians had to go on MySpace to get that music. Uh, and I think you see a, a similar thing with all these streaming platforms is that, you know, they're not actually interested. They're not music companies, you know, they're audio companies or they're ad platforms. That's their, their primary function is like Spotify does not care about musicians because it doesn't care about music. It cares about how long people are listening to something on Spotify. And so again, the music is the cheese that brings in the audiences that are going to use the platform and get ads thrown at them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately that's what you're doing these days as a musician is you're providing cheese for traps for, you know, your audiences to get, yeah, spied on and marketed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, uh, I think that's part of why Spotify is pivoting towards podcasts now. Totally. Right. Because, because people they listen take to longer to listen to. Longer. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Like that's just it. It's just a numbers game. Um, they don't give a shit about anything else, you know, it also reminds me of sort of like the naivete on the TikTok conversation where people were just like, oh, what, you think the American government doesn't spy on you through these apps? I was like, no, I think it does. I also think that the Chinese government would spy on you via TikTok because that's what these platforms do. Like, you know. And that you was be actually like- super interesting because I think there is a guy on Reddit, it was sort of a big thing. He reverse engineered a decent portion of the TikTok Yeah, I heard app. about that. And he, his kind of like summary was that it was orders of magnitude more invasive than Facebook or Google um, can be. I think I actually, it collects like your um, cell phone tower data, like how the cell phone figures out where you are by pinging the tower, seeing how far it is away, and then figuring out which tower to use to send your call. So that's used to triangulate kind of where you are. And I think I saw, um, this was in a Norwegian newspaper, so I couldn't confirm it, but they apparently purchased user data from China of Norwegian cell phone users that they may have gotten from TikTok 
and the Norwegian newspaper was able to figure out where several secret Norwegian secret like military bases were based on knowing who certain military officers were and then buying their cell phone data and then figuring out where they went. Yeah. And I can't confirm that cause I don't read Norwegian, but um, <laughs> it was, you know, like there's, there is a certain level of naivete going on about like, well, you know, America spies. So like, why are you worried or something like, I mean, not that I think that we have to worry about ourselves or anything involved in all of this, but like, it's just sort of silly to be like, I don't see why anyone cares, you know, like, Oh, there are some interesting things going on there. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a contrarian insouciance, right? Yeah. That often comes from, I really, I think comes from a, uh, probably like dominant end of the left that understandably doesn't want to seem like it's, um xenophobic or anything like that because the idea of having a critique of some other government there's the false idea that that's a critique like of the people that live there which uh not true um yeah. i would hate uh for someone to take a look at what the u.s government does and think anything about me uh, <laughs> because of it you know and i extend the benefit of the doubt to a citizen living anywhere else you know um with regard to that so the other thing is like ian you and i have talked about this before with the myspace era with all that stuff you know this is probably going to sound like um some millennial nostalgia but there was the file sharing era was extremely cool um and it did feel like there was a type of tech utopianism to it, which I now understand is like sort of a psyop, uh, but felt very real when you were a kid, like finding stuff online that no one else had heard about. It could give you a window into the past, right? Where um, you could find stuff that you couldn't find at your ro- local record store um, or anything like that, you know? And that sort of seems to be over in a way right like one of the guys from napster is now one of the guys who's at spotify mm-hmm. um right sean whatever his name is maybe it's both of them i can't remember well yeah it's interesting the thing that you're describing as uh this sort of like the democratization effect that happens when everyone can go on everyone that has an internet connection of a certain speed can go on media fire and find records from all over the world from any point in time uh sort of bypassing all the usual gatekeepers of publicists of record labels of you know music magazines or mtv or what have you uh and but in doing so of course they were breaking the law which i i don't think it like personally i downloaded a ton of music so i don't give a shit about the moral aspect i i I fucking downloaded so many cars dog (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, But I I do think that there was this kind of nagging guilt that existed in music culture around it, because obviously the artists weren't happy that they weren't making any money off of all these people getting their music. And I think some people that had uh, the long view could recognize like, it's just net good that more people are listening to my music, because that means that I can potentially sell them more t-shirts, and that they'll potentially come out to shows and drink some beers and make it easier for me to make a living touring. but what what I think happened is that people knew that the record labels were bad and were happy to rip off the record labels by stealing, but felt bad that they weren't 
compensating artists in some way. And so then the streaming services come in, Spotify and Apple Music and all that, and say, hey, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can listen to music as if it's as easy to do it as if you were stealing it. But if you pay five bucks a month, the artists get a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a cent. And sort of, it's sort of like guilt-free piracy is the way I think of, of streaming. Um, and the problem is that it, it didn't just destroy piracy. It also destroyed the ability for artists to actually sell their music. It just completely screwed up the market in that way. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of the situation that we're in now. But, yeah. So yeah, can you piracy work? is so like artisanal now I've noticed like yeah. a lot of the old, it used to be like mass culture. Like you could probably find a random guy on the street and he was torrenting too, but now it's sort of like, torrenting started out strange and has returned to being strange and if you do it you're like a pretty weird person because it is so much easier just to get on spotify or whatever mm -hmm. but like i remember god like what you're saying i had no sort of inside view of this stuff because i was just a dumb kid who couldn't like pay attention to something long enough to like learn to play guitar but i you know, I remember being in high school and like finding a like amazing black metal band from New York that had like a hundred people who listened to them. And I still have their record that you probably can't find anywhere else now, like downloaded on an old hard drive. Out of pure and curiosity, do you remember which band it is? It was like Northern Mist or something, maybe. Okay, I definitely don't know it. <laughs> Sorry, it was like just... <laughs> upstate New York, like guys walking around in the snow Three SM58s dangling from the ceiling <laughs> in the basement. That's how they recorded it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, and you know, I could find uh, Gilva from Dark Throne talking about his musical influences, which include like Slaughter Lord from fucking new zealand or something so mm -hmm. i'm like googling that Slaughter band is Lord. really good you can find oh, them on Bandcamp now <laughs> they're so good and i found them on media fire like you're saying so i'm picking up this like weird australian black metal record and listening to it and now i'm like huh i wonder where i can find one of their shirts and buy it and it's like i'm just some random kid in like florida who's now like trying you know like i feel like it was so interesting to see the beginning of this because it was like all the connections that we find so interesting now are like, oh, wow, like if you're on TikTok, you'll generate a lot of engagement with your content. Like it was all happening in an extremely sort of like nascent form even back then. But there was like a, I think similarly to how we felt sort of like there was the utopic feeling to it because it was like just sort of being put together by fans in a way like you would get the album you would upload it other people would download it like it was peer-to-peer -peer, and it sort of felt like oh the internet is this place where they really can't lock us down or control us we're kind of free you know like i'm listening to like techno remixes of 90s j-pop and i'm playing runescape and like talking to my buddies on forums and things are just like great and we're all connecting to each other and it's so much better than your normal shitty life and there is this feeling that like, oh, like this is a really good place. The internet's a good place. It'll always stay one step ahead of them. And I think that that was true for a really interesting kind of reason that like the people who had all the money were still kind of thinking about technology in terms of like the VHS tape is a big problem because now they can record what's on TV and like the internet was coming out. So they just had no clue what was going on with it. 
they didn't really know what to do with it. There was the weird like dot com boom monetization, but I don't think that that was actually like a skillful use of what the internet was at all. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it kind of blew up very quickly is sort of proof of that. And the fact that, you know, but then we kind of grew up and then people like me, but not me started working for these companies yeah. and saying like, you don't get what you can actually do with the internet. Like here's what you should be doing. And it's sort of turned a really, I mean, to me, a kind of a malicious corner since then, but. Yeah. So I think like, you know, so our last episode, we were talking about the death of Lucent Technologies and American Telecom. And obviously the dot-com boom has like a huge impact there. Like that's like a bubble of money that leads to the layout of all sorts of internet hardware uh, to accommodate this boom that then like doesn't really happen. And that crushes American Telecom in a lot of ways. So there are like some material aspects here too. And then we can see the nature of like how a firm is going to change. I think part of why the dot-com boom happened is because it was a lot of people being like, this is going to be like a business. Like this is going to be like- make money somehow later. Right, right. And this is like a brick and mortar, but you see it on your screen, right? And that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily how it ended up working. But if we go back to like the 60s and 70s and like what ends up breaking up these monopolies like telecoms and stuff like that, part of it's the consumer rights movement. So like how is a major firm that wants to establish itself as a platform in this new terrain called the internet going to survive after uh, you've had the consumer rights movement, which has squeezed monopolies? Well, making things free is really important because it feels like you're being nice to the consumer. And in that way, you can construct the terms of service that then lets you data scrape and do whatever, but they don't feel it, right? So we're in a really weird place where uh, legal consent is now its own type of prison, right? It's its own type of control because, I mean, Ian, as you know, if you're not on these platforms as a musician, you are invisible. And that is not to your benefit in the way that it was in the file sharing era. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah. I just, I know I mentioned this actually when the last time you came on my podcast, but it's a good enough point. So I'm going to repeat it that I actually think that part of the way that these companies like Netflix, Spotify, um, basically the whole like fang uh, structure, you know, yeah. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, and I, I'll, I'll throw in Spotify as well, just because they're germane to my particular livelihood. Um, They sell themselves to the users by the fact that they're spying on you. You know, the, the fact that they're getting all of this data from you, they're spinning that and saying, well, now that we know so much about you, we can serve you better. You know, Spotify can create all these playlists and recommendations based on the data that they are stealing from you. Um, yeah, surveillance and, with a human face. Exactly, yes. And, and that makes people all the more ready to give away more than they think they're giving away because they think they're getting something of equal return, which they're clearly not. Yeah, and like how would you measure that, right? Like I wouldn't know how to measure that. I can just ballpark it because I'm like resourcefully pessimistic, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> like that I'm like, yeah, this probably doesn't add up. Like if I'm paying like whatever, 15 a month or however much it is for Spotify or whatever, there's no way that like what I'm getting um, is equal to what they're getting out of that transaction. Same with signing up for Facebook or whatever that is going on there. And 
you know, if we look at back at the early days of the internet when it's like DARPA, so Yasha Levine wrote Surveillance Valley about this very thing. You know, there are these people that got sucked into creating the internet who thought that they were like the bohemians that were so smart compared to the stodgy CIA. And like, even if they took this government money and did this government work to create this stuff, that they were always going to be one step ahead, you know? And the thing I always think about is from Adam Curtis's hypernormalization. Mm-hmm. when those two hackers um uh there's that internet utopian guy who i think was in the grateful dead or whatever and uh you know he writes this manifesto that's like the digital utopia blah 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 and then they just use the internet to find all his credit card records and publish them online <laughs> 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 um, and they're just like yeah not really man like that's, that's kind of naive to think about yeah, I think there's like a reason I'm I'm going through like a big Thomas Pynchon phase right now and his most recent novel Bleeding Edge uh is sort of an interesting like reframing of his common topic of well let me put it this way his last two novels were Inherent Vice and Bleeding Edge and Inherent Vice is all about the end of the hippie era. Yeah. You know, the sort of like the way that the hippie aesthetics were co-opted and resold back to hippies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where you get like Volkswagens becoming, you know, mass produced and mm-hmm. um, sold to normies. And then on the same token, you're having all the hippies sell each other out, you know, accepting government money because they're fucking broke. So they start snitching on their friends. And then the same thing happens with the internet. It's interesting that it's like the same people do, that created the hippie culture and then also created the internet because the internet got gentrified and everything cool and edgy about it the way that we're describing all this file sharing and early YouTube and early MySpace gets sucked up and controlled by the same giant companies that control everything else and repackaged and resold to essentially a like suburban internet audience. Um, So I I feel like that's a, a good it's good to connect those two eras in your mind because I think we're seeing a similar effect. In I both. think that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting cause you're like a pension guy and I'm a Don DeLillo guy and I feel mm-hmm. like they're sort of like analyzing the same thing from different vantages, right? Like now that California is burning down, I keep thinking about the DeLillo line from white noise. It's that Californians invented the idea of lifestyle and that alone warrants their destruction, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, but I think like, I want to talk about two shows, right? Is, is a way to understand this. So one way to understand, I love that you brought up Volkswagen in the hippie era, right? Because they're sort of pioneers of the ironic advertisement mm-hmm. with the first, uh, one of their, the groundbreaking advertisement for the Beetle, which was a black and white ad that had a Volkswagen Beetle and it just said lemon. Right, right. right. Yeah, and the ad was that you could get Volkswagens in these cool, hip, new colors, right? But it's a, obviously a play on words of a shitty car. Right. right and the visual yeah, yeah. gag yeah um and that to me like spells like the ironic detachment that's going to sort of be one hand washing the other as we move through all of these iterations um is in part uh, grown there in that advertising room and that comes up in uh mad men mm-hmm. and don yep. draper looks at it and he's just like this is like a stupid condescending ad um and uh which i think is really funny and i can't to me it's ambiguous what the show is saying about him or that moment um it's sort of like yeah we could take a look at this weird thing that was happening in advertising but instead we're just going to look at your idea of what you think the mad men were in some sure. way I, I, I think, I, this is like my one of my favorite shows so i can yeah. i can talk about it at length forever and I'll, i swear we'll get back to like actually serious <laughs> conversations eventually yeah. but um 
the thing that I think the show is trying to portray is Don Draper slowly being outmodded and uh, uh, replaced yeah, that's probably by the next generation. Yeah, he's then, already at the pinnacle. And so if he's at the height, that means there's somebody coming up right mm-hmm. behind him that's going to replace him. Yeah, I think that's true. And then the other one is Gilmore Girls. And I talk about this at the top of my genre core piece. Um, but there are two episodes of Gilmore Girls that I always think about when I think about when Silicon Valley became a sort of dominant cultural zeitgeist. Uh, and there's one episode where I think uh, Rory is asking Lorelai something and Lorelai goes like, why don't you just Google it? And Rory's like, is that a verb now? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I guess so. And I was just like, fuck, that is. <laughs> You know, like Google was like new and just rising into prominence at that time. And I remember being a kid watching that show uh, and being like, oh, I guess that is a verb now. Like, I guess I do say Google it now and that that's a new thing. And the other one is um, when Rory starts writing for the Harvard Crimson. I think she goes to Harvard or yeah, I don't, whichever fucking Ivy League paper she writes for when she's in college. And she's like, well, I want to do something about file sharing and music downloading and everybody's like yeah that's kind of tired and stupid but go off i guess and so she goes to this like you know insufferable nerd who's torrenting everything and he's just she she comes in to interview him and he's like i don't know downloading the entire steely dan catalog at once just to like have it and he's like have you listened to the new interpol it sounds like joy division mugging tom waits in an alley um and uh you know in that move after that scene like a bunch of other stuff happens but to me that like captures like part of how we watch this shift culturally um and then you can sort of see the long tail of it in um in the in the madman thing which comes later but is obviously takes place like way before any of that we could really go into at depth too that i'm really surprised that was in that show but because that's sort of well um so there's a book called The Otaku is a Database Animal or something like that. And it's that all sounds about lit. <laughs> it's all about um I think kind of a similar sort of thing, like interacting with things maybe in terms of data and in terms of storage instead of like, oh, I'm gonna buy the CD and listen to it. It's sort of like, yeah, I might need the Steely Dan catalog one day because I don't know what I'm going to be into in 10 years and maybe the internet won't exist. You know, like there's this weird thought process that goes into like, okay, like I need to bring all this stuff sort of to me and then categorize it and have it sitting around, but I may never touch like 99% of it. Yeah. Yo, go ahead. I'm thinking about how the, like before music became entirely existent on like Spotify and streaming other streaming services. There was this period of time where websites like last FM and rate your music were kind of like the dominant spaces to be in as like a music nerd. I love to scrabble my audio dog. (laughs) But like think about what you're doing on both of those websites is you're collecting your own data and becoming, it's like turning you into the same companies that would eventually take over music. And so it's like training this kind of like constant consumption, watch the numbers go up instead of like actually listening to music and developing a deep relationship with the art itself. You're, you're consuming it as part of a, an endless stream of statistics 
and I think like the idea of like, oh, I can just get all eight Steely Dan records all at once. Cool. I'm going to do that. I'm going to rate all of them. I'm going to listen to them X number of times. I can now see how many times I've listened to well, Kid and Charlemagne. I, and, you know? and importantly, like I'm a Steely Dan guy now, right? Like, yeah. I don't know if you guys uh, have like this memory, but I remember there being stuff that my last FM couldn't scrabble. Oh yeah. Um, in other words, it couldn't log. And me, of course, this is like such like narcissistic, like young millennial shit being like, it's not going to, like who I am is not going to be represented in the data. Yeah. Like I am not the type of guy that my data says I am. Like, how do I fix this? Like I need <laughs> to be visible to my peers as like this indie auteur, like whatever, you know, whatever mm -hmm. Uh, like liberal arts disease I contracted in New England. Um, you know, they like, did a really good job of making it easy to integrate it into your like forum signature. So it could be like the last thing you scrolled oh, would be I down had, there. I had no and then idea people would that. People would click it and they would go look at your last FM. And I did this all the time. Like you meet somebody, like check out their last FM, like what to listen to. Oh, you like Ramstein as much as me tight. Like let's talk or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you can also edit like the data that's on last fm too so i feel like if you had like a guilty pleasure which is a phrase that i don't even know if it really exists anymore um, it did could, then yeah. yeah it definitely did then and it'd be like well do i want to like have you do know, i want to have kickstart my heart by motley Crue as my number one <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> or like oh man better like turn off scrobbling when i pull up you know mariah carey or something yeah, yeah. Like it's yeah, or when I lift weights to down with the sickness, like I really don't want that to show up. <laughs> like trying to PR at the breakdown. <laughs> it's funny that you say, because it's true that now we've, there is a sort of like, there is no guilty pleasure. But at the same time, I've noticed that back then, like Emmett was saying, I wanted everything to be on there so that people could know who I was. Right but now. I feel like for me, the thing has switched to where I'm like, I want to be as unscrobbled as I can. Like I want to be, this isn't, me doing a like oh i don't want to be legible to the state or anything it's more of a just like aesthetic choice or something not even a choice it's an aesthetic disposition that i have that i haven't thought much about but that just exists where i want to be as out of the system as possible in regards to some things chris ott talks about that a bit in one of his old shallow rewards about people doing limited release cassette tapes. Yeah. The hiding, their, I think, is that The hiding, yeah, and about, like, trying to resist some of this being seen. Like, some people don't want to be seen, and that's another interesting facet, which I think probably goes hand-in-hand hand with the fact that you're right. Like, everything is seen, and we're not as ashamed of it as we used to be. Right, well, and that's an interesting thing, too. Like, because, Ian, like, you release challenging music, right? Like it's not, your music has an element of criticality to it. Um, it's not like, you know, I was just talking to you last night, I think about Left Behind. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think they have that, which is fine. Like, I don't care. Like, you know, uh, that band rules. Um, yeah. But the type of like heavy music you're interested in generating, uh, frankly, can't do numbers right like, yeah yeah uh it, and it can't even really do numbers within the kind of people that would like it because i make a lot of weird choices like i i'm not just playing isis core you know right. like <laughs> yeah yeah um and because I, I deliberately want to take it into a new place i wanted to try and like combine mm -hmm. it with other influences that it previously hadn't really touched on the edges of and I also am still interested in making like accessible melodies and like song structures on some level. So I'm kind of like cutting myself off from 
all angles. Like it's not poppy enough to be actually like Mm -hmm. popular. It's not super challenging because I'm not really interested in making like unlistenably dense music. Yeah. Um, you got chip tune for metal guys. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think why I brought that up is something John said, um, which I've talked to, um, a fair amount of people about and the idea that it feels like because everything can be accessible all at once i've been trying to figure out how to visualize this but like there's no underground anymore because everything is technically almost on the same like topography it's just like whether or not you're a skyscraper so whether or not you're charlie xcx or whether you're like a bungalow that might be like lamniforms right mm-hmm. in comparison <laughs> uh is like what's gonna matter there um but uh, everybody has the bird's eye view. So it's really just a matter of where they're putting their eyes, not mm-hmm. necessarily like, how do I want to say this? Okay, l- let's talk about it this way, right? Like what happened in Seattle, right? Like there was this idea that I inherited as a kid growing up in the 2000s that there were these moments where music could change the way people experience the world at a mass scale because of scenes that had gone ignored for almost decades that suddenly had an artist that broke into the open because a major label just happened to pay them enough money. Right. Mm -hmm. The example really being, uh, of course, Nirvana smells like teen spirit. Right. But I love the Seattle scene and the history of it. So I'm like a deep nerd on like everything that leads up to that. Um, and that type of thing is what I have in mind when I say there's no underground, there's nothing happening like, totally secured and cloistered away because like how many people were participating in like the 12 inch singles clubs at sub pop in the fucking eighties, like less than 1% of the population of America. You know what I mean? Like, and that was the incubator for what ended up being this world historically important scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nothing incubates anymore. Yeah. That's sort of what I mean. Yeah. And that seemed time to there being this idea of like an underground, a hidden, element right it it seems to me there's something there's something about uh something being hidden and something being just outside your field field of view and everything feels like just outside my field of view and if i change my field of view if i click on the right hashtags on Bandcamp and troll through them long enough i can see not everything obviously because there's sort of like a borgesian library of babble thing going on with music right now mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but i can see a, a way more of it than i ever would i have vivid memories of spending hours on dat piff just going through Bro, like, oh, shitty mixtape after shitty mixtape until you find the one where the dude like I don't know, freestyles about how exactly you make crack. And it's so like, you know, it just hits right. And you're like, yeah, I found the one. Yeah. Or like that. What was that guy from Tampa? We both like that. you found. Oh yeah. I was shell shocked. Palm beach, Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Shell shocked. Who's currently in jail. So yeah. You can only find this stuff on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We'll include the link. We'll include the link. Everybody should listen to shell shock, but um, I'm bringing this up to you because it's like, I want to know from your perspective from an artist's perspective what that feels like or how that looks given that i mean we're of the same age range so we've grown up with a lot of these conventional wisdoms that don't seem to hold anymore Mm -hmm. i mean speaking purely as an artist i think you have to focus on the work itself and just make sure that you're making good stuff you know and like the record that i'm working on right now is actually kind of like thematically interested in a lot of this sort of stuff the the it's called the lonely adam and it's all just about like the atomization of the world through the internet, like the experience of like 
feeling that you're overwhelmed by constantly, uh, you know, being connected to everything yet the sensation that you get from that connection is a sense of extreme disconnection. Um, and like right now I'm, I'm just trying to focus on making the album as good as I can make it. Uh, and if we were under different circumstances, I would then be thinking about, well, who do I tour with? How can I play live frequently enough to, to build an audience? But now none of that's possible because of the, you know, because of COVID and also because of just things are difficult and I have other concerns. Um, where am I going with this? I feel like I kind of railroaded myself. Um, well, it seems like you're talking about like, there's a difference between how you might approach this as an artist who's interested in generating the work, which is going to be yes. a little bit more myopic and focus on the work, work itself. And then I also know you to be a pretty savvy critic. And so it seems like you're about to bring in like sort of the dual consciousness you have going on where there's a meta awareness about the culture you're participating in, even if you're being myopic about. What's yes. Yeah. I, I think it's, you have to start thinking about what new stuff you can do outside of the art. Like making the art is one thing and it's important to make um, interesting and challenging art to yourself. I think you should, I, I'm kind of of the belief that you should always be pushing forward in some respect. That's where the name comes from. It's, you know, sharks, whether it's biologically true or not, the idea that if you stop swimming, you die. Uh, so that's kind of like my attitude about my art is like, keep, keep pushing forward, keep trying to improve in one way or another. Um, but then once you get outside of that, you have to start thinking about like, oh, well, how am I going to find people uh, that, how is this music going to find people? How are they going, to, how am I going to like find the people that are interested in hearing this and give it to them? And I think almost the, the attitude that I'm taking these days is uh, sort of deepening the relationship that I have with people that are already listening to it. I want like the people that are already listening to my music and are already reading my stuff or listening to my podcast to feel like they really, really love the stuff that they're getting and like have a better sense of me and I have a better sense of them because I think building that kind of more sustained personal relationship will one, just be more gratifying because, you know, I know for a fact that they're hearing what I'm saying, uh, but also that they'll be more interested in then showing the music and the experience and the world that I'm kind of building with them to someone else and sort of relying on actual relationships to, to bring the music together and bring the world together instead of just like spamming on a million platforms, like constantly with, right. and, and just hoping it sticks somewhere. Like, I don't think that works for me. Right. So it like, seems like it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I just want to say like, so the strategy for somebody who's making more challenging art, let's say is to go deeper rather than broad. Yes. Right. It's like, I'm not interested necessarily in tons of new listeners. I'm interested in, keeping the listeners that I have for perhaps a lifetime, mm -hmm. right? Like, or for as long as possible. Like I'm going to grow with these people as my art grows. John, you were going to. Oh, just, this really seems to be like, I know we're talking about music, but this is exactly like what's going on right now in so many other places, which is so interesting. Like there's a guy, uh, Brad Trammell, who's an American artist and we, we, we stand the king. Yeah. yeah. Very good. <laughs> he, his big thing right now is kind of reaching out to people who may be doing art school or thinking about art school or trying to do art and letting them know like what the actual playing field is like, which is sort of shocking that like, I don't think anyone else has tried to do that. But one of the things that he's been explaining is that like the traditional structure of how you were supposed to be as an American artist is like, 
you start out, you got out of school, you're making art, you find a little gallery to represent you. Eventually you trade up to a media, like a mid-level gallery. And then eventually you're in a blue chip gallery because you've worked your way up a ladder of like working really hard. And now you're a successful artist who's like represented by one of these big names and you make a lot of money and you live in New York city and like a brownstone and that's where you were always going to end up. But the mid-level galleries are like no longer financially viable. They're all closing. The ladder is essentially having its midsection removed and all the people at the bottom, he's trying to say like, if you believe this is going to work for you, it's going to turn out to be a lie. And the thing that he's kind of suggesting is very analogous to all of this, like, make art that regular people can afford, try to like connect with people who like what you do and build a relationship, sort of form a community around that, mm -hmm. do things that are meaningful to people and bypass these institutions, which, you know, ossified and are now falling apart slowly and, you know, just kind of like crumbling into the sea. Like you don't need to be a part of that. And the sort of beauty of that is you don't have to make stuff that's targeted at that world and those people, like you can just make whatever you wanted to make originally and just do what you want to do and do it in this new way. And I think too, probably Emmett can really speak to this because he's far more industrious than I, but I think it's very similar to in the sort of like, I want to be some kind of like academic or intellectual world as well. Like the, the old institutions no longer work for you if you're most people. But if you're really committed to like, I want to research and study something and share my results with people, it's kind of taking the same form, like launching podcasts and doing Patreons and publishing on Substack or Medium or whatever. Like it's sort of, it's a weird duality because it's like, you do have to, you have to do this stuff. You have to hustle, you know? Um, and so you're like, even though I, for people like us, probably there's always going to be a criticality of something like entrepreneur brain, like, always be selling yourself, you know, like, uh, like the ace hood mentality, like close mouths, don't get fed on this boulevard. So I'm like going hard every day, you know, Bruh, like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and like, but on the other hand, you're like, if that completely colonizes my brain, I'm kind of like screwed. So mm -hmm. I have to somehow distance myself from this. But at the same time, if I don't participate in some way, I like what, what will I do? How will I connect to people? And I, it mm -hmm. feels like that's kind of like an interesting core tension to a lot of these different things. I don't know. What you yeah. Think Ian, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th that's why I, I try to focus my, or like put place emphasis on the communal aspect of it rather than the sort of like everyday grinding, you know, hustle hard and you'll make it at like, way of looking at it like it's I, I know Emmett you've talked a lot about how you know the like the punk ethos is basically just being like a small business owner yes that is that is my hot take that yeah. punk is about being a small business owner right and like it, well it's completely true and I, I I think that when I talk to like a lot of my other friends who play in like the DIY scene that's basically what they are is they're small business owners they they sell t-shirts and they sell music um but to pursue that to its to its nth degree to its logical conclusion um yeah you're just getting played because there is no there's no place to rise to without the uh without a, a ton of luck or with the backing of some other entities that find what you're doing useful in some way so the only way to really 
make that like I think absolutely being industrious and having like a, a strong work ethic and learning from a lot of the more business minded types is helpful. But the thing that I find more interesting to do with that is to then uh, focus on creating an actual community of musicians and music fans that are interested in supporting each other and making work with each other. Um, and that's a thing that's very easy to corrupt and very easy to take advantage of for people that are just trying to use DIY as kind of like the minor leagues before they, you know, get to the big leagues. Uh, so it's, it's hard to, to find that balance, but that, that's what I think you have to do is, is to focus on community. Yeah, totally. And like, I mean, I think we can sort of see that um, we're experiencing like a renaissance of uh, monopoly problems. Um, I don't have like the phobia of monopolies that like guys like Matt Stoller have. If you guys follow him on Twitter, he's a journalist and like, I guess a historian who really hates monopolies. Um, You know, I think they can be good, whether it's like telecom or trains or like something like that. There are like natural monopolies I'm interested in. But um, I think, you know, all of us are at least like left-ish. One of the things that um, I think people forget is that there's infighting within sort of like the capitalist class as well. And there's the Mm -hmm. fight between non-monopoly capital and monopoly capital. And that's really like the artisanal punk small business guy (laughs) and these enormous like um, state adjacent streaming platforms that are 10,000% selling your data to the fucking CIA (laughs) Uh, whenever they can. Right. So, I mean, Amazon makes most of its money off of cloud computing for the DOD. Like the ordering shit is just like a cool supply chain system they set up uh, to get them to the point where they can broker those deals with the state. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's sort of what we have going, we have going on now. And that's why it's like uncomfortable and strange. And there seem to be some moments that are like emancipatory, but then those can kind of get undermined by these other behemoths in the field um, who of course try to find a way to break into those aspects of community building or whatever and monetize them for their own good. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, People say colonized or whatever. Um, I'm not really sure about that. Like I get what that metaphor is supposed to mean. Um, but uh, for some, whatever, for reasons I'm not going to go into here, it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> like I don't think it. Uh, what are we is, talking about being colonized? Uh, like the uh, artisanal communities created by these uh, smaller artists or whatever. I can see like big companies like wanting to break into how to do that right yeah how do we do that for us entirely like how do we make that our thing that we do and how do we make that like ready-made for artists to have so that at the end of the day this is just another part of the rentier economy like Mm -hmm. no one you don't own it you rent it from us yep exactly well no one owns music anymore it's like a, a prime example of that like you know you put your music onto streaming services that people are renting from uh, nothing on the internet is not selling something or buying mm-hmm. something, you know, mm-hmm. like all these sort of ad hoc communities that sprung up around something like rate your music or old music forums no longer exist uh, in the same way. I mean, I still use rate your music because I'm a fucking nerd, but uh, you're, you're seeing this thing where every, every way of being on the internet is providing some sort of continuous rent like income for some other company or for yourself, you know, like you don't just buy a record. You have to subscribe to someone 
and they it's all subscri- everything is subscription models. Right. You need to be there. visible to them, right? Like that's the first mm-hmm. thing I learned what I wanted to figure out this year after I lost my job, like how I could make it as an independent intellectual. And like one of the things I realized it's like, oh, I need to offer an ebook for free that in order to get it, you need to give me your email. Because then the yep. next thing that I want to write and charge you for, I now have a ready-made list of people who are more likely to buy than anyone else, right? Like that's the yep. way that works. You know, yep. and so everyone's doing that. Everyone needs access to information to make it visible. Like that's what this is all about. This is about legibility and visibility because the market runs on metrics. Mm-hmm. And like that's what you need. So um I want to transition to um, a conversation about what to do with critique um, and talk about how fast things move on Spotify and the sort of time delay we talked about at the beginning, but I also really need to take a piss. So I'm going to go do that uh, and then we'll come back. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be right back. 